Welcome to all of our listeners as we dive into another House of Apis podcast. We are quite excited about today's topic and having a bit of a debate. I'm Mila. And I'm Katie. Coming to you once again from our homes on opposite sides of the globe. And today we're going to explore the F word. Feminist. Ooh, scary, scary, scary ooh, word. Ooh. Energizing to some frightening to others anyways but with all seriousness it's a word it's a label it's a movement it's a declaration and it instills a reaction and imagery in the minds of many people when they hear the word for some it's a positive and empowering movement that they proudly own and describe themselves and for others it's a term that represents women who strive to destroy tradition and villainize men and so much more and in today's conversation we're going to start exploring the f word and we'll probably only scratch the surface on the topic Certainly. For today's conversation, we are joined by our good friend, Lina Abidafe, who we love and are so excited to have with us today, especially because we know that she's really busy. And we'll let her do her own introduction in a moment. We couldn't even come close to doing her credentials justice. But first, as always, let's set the stage with some information for us to start our conversation with. Starting with the definition of feminist. If you go to the dictionary, it defines a feminist as a person who supports feminism. Oh, yes. Don't you I love definitions so. that define themselves? I don't know. Yeah, that is not really helpful. Okay, so then what is the definition of feminism? Subtle nuances depending on which dictionary you use, but its essence is consistent. The advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of the sexes the theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes, and organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. There are nuances of feminism based on the layering of philosophies, political frameworks, race, global context, and so much more, which can make it confusing to understand what being a feminist means and what people consider it is. Complicated by the fact that those that want to villainized feminists like to lump everyone under one label with one definition. Stereotyping at its best. But before we get too far down the path, let's bring on our guest and welcome to the House of Apis, Lina. Mila and I had the good fortune of meeting you in Amsterdam while we were all there for a creative leadership program or what I've been calling entrepreneurial boot camp, but we had a blast together and you are most definitely family here at the House of Apis. And we're so glad to have you on the show. So why don't you give the audience a bit of an intro, tell them what you want to tell them about yourself so they can get to know a bit about you. And then after your intro, I'm curious how you would define feminism since we just gave the dictionary version of it. Yay, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you both. I do feel like family. I think what you're doing is fantastic. Kudos to you. And I'm honored, excited, and delighted to be a part of it. So my name is Lena Abarafi, and I work on women's rights. And what I do is I've traveled all around the world working on the systems and services and support that try and make women's rights possible. And I've done that mostly by trying to prevent violence against women and doing that in some of the hardest settings, like in humanitarian emergencies where whatever is already happening in a country ends up that much worse for women because women do bear the brunt of the world's tragedies. And that's in every single country, in every single space all the time, no matter where 
we are. Just you being know? a woman in the world, existing as a woman is an emergency. Which brings me to answer your question <laughs> about what feminism is. Because I feel like I learned very early on that there were so many labels that we're attached to, that we're expected to adhere to, country and nationality, religion, uh, family, ethnic, racial identities, whatever else. And none of those things resonated with me. And when I understood what was happening to women in the world, when I learned the kinds of crimes that are committed against women, the types of violence that women experience very often at the hands of men, I became very angry. And it was that rage that helped me understand that the one label that was meaningful to me and the only label that will ever be meaningful to me is being a woman and being a feminist. And being a feminist means that I accept the responsibility for acting on behalf of women and believing that it's possible to build a better world for women and that we deserve a better world. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Actually, two episodes ago, we talked about using the Wonder Woman pose to get your energy and your strength before you go out. You are a Wonder Woman. <laughs> I need to pose like Lena because of all the amazing things you've done throughout your entire life and your career and continue to do. And again, we're super excited to have you on our show. And and I, I love what you just said. And I think that's part of the thing and the problem with the labels, right? Labels keep things black and white and wrong, in or out. And there's just too much texture and nuances and differentiation and things that happen for people to just put a quick label on something and to understand what that means. So exactly. I think we're all wonder women and we all have power. And I feel like there's this, a, a moment where you have to decide how you're going to use the power that you have. And for me, how I came to all of this as a career, how I consider myself a full-time feminist is really because I felt like I had a duty to do it. I believe in it as the most important cause of my life personally. And I feel like now after, I don't know, almost 30 years of, of screaming about it, that I'm good at it. So that's- You are great at it. <laughs> I mean, and finding the ways to do it. This is the most frustrating job that never should have been a job fighting for equality is should not be a battle it should be common sense yeah but as i've discovered in the world in every country i've been in including this one in the states common sense is not all that common and no don't, no no no, no. Well, that I'm, is still, like <laughs> I'm still amazed that we're still trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution, right? Like it's two, it's 2021, folks. But anyway, exactly. Who okay, decided okay. that we were less than and why is that acceptable? So I know we're going to have a very energizing and interesting conversation. This is just a sneak peek. But before we get too far into the discussion, we want to put out our compelling question of the week. Every week, every episode, we have a compelling question that is related or parallel with our conversation. So today's compelling question is, when you were either in high school, grade school, what gender or equity issues, situations were you fired up about? even if you didn't realize it at the time that it was a gender or equity uh, situation. Is there anything yeah. that comes to mind? There is just about everything that comes to mind. <laughs> I think we don't even realize how far back we need to go. By way of, of background, I'm Lebanese and Palestinian. Already that's complicated. There's gender issues overlaid all over that. And I spent my first nine years in Saudi Arabia. So talk about 
an incubator for observing some of the most egregious violations against women and experiencing through the eyes of my mother what she was and was not allowed to do. And the garment that she was forced to wear every time we left the compound. You can imagine I'm a kid and I'm watching all of this happen saying, mom, you're wearing shorts inside and you're wearing abaya, the black covering outside. Why do you do that? And for my mom to say over and over again, we're doing this because we're here, but this is not how we are. So those kinds of messages already from a very young age with my parents trying to counter all of the questions and the confusion and the angst that I was facing in a place like Saudi Arabia, that's extremely difficult to be a girl. I think it started from the beginning. I only put the words to it when I was 14 in a class that I took in high school called Comparison women's history. And that wasn't about women's history, but about the history of violence against women. And that was my moment. That was the bomb that went off in my heart. And that was it. And that's when I realized that the world is not equal. And that somehow, like I said, somebody decided somewhere at some point in time that we were less than, and that I wasn't going to accept that. And that was it. Well, at 14, yeah. Anything that we are going to say doesn't compare. I'm from Venezuela, as you listeners know. And then in Latin America, there is very much this idea that the girls are the ones that are taking care of the house and being nice and cleaning and helping the mother. I think that is everywhere, by the way. But I mean, I'm just saying how it was for me. And then the one thing that happened in my family was I was the oldest girl in a family that were five cousins older than me that were boys. So then I grew up with these kids and they were all on skateboards or going on top of trees and whatever. And then I was always wearing dresses and everybody was like, oh, she's cute. But then I would just run with them. And then all of the time I would be stepping on on the front of my dresses, let's say all the time, because I was not supposed to run. And then they were making comments about, okay, this girl is a little bit wild. And then it was not that I was wild. I was just a girl. I just wanted to run and do, you know, whatever kids do, but I was not supposed to do that. So then that is something that I realize uh, now. And my, my parents, actually, they were really relaxed about it, but it was the situation that they look at me and they said, okay, I'm, I was supposed to be quiet and sitting on a chair or playing something uh, girly instead of running around and uh, skateboarding. Mine is in the space of athleticism. You all have gotten to know me. I'm pretty, pretty stubborn and outspoken and have no problems from my point of view out there. And when I was in high school, so it was a lot of during the whole Title IX stuff and everything, right? Like a lot of things about girls' sports and girls' athletics and what schools were willing to pay for and what they weren't willing to pay for. And I was an athlete and I was in some kind of sport all year round. And at one point, they decided they were going to have an indoor soccer league, but they were um, only going to fund the boys' soccer league. They weren't going to fund a girls' soccer league. I went and looked at the rules of this league and there was nothing that said that a girl could not play on the indoor soccer team. And so there was a handful of us that wanted to play and we went to the school and said, we'd like to play on the team. There's nothing that says that we can't, we understand you can't fund a a separate girls team, but then let the handful of us play on this team. By the way, there were guys on this indoor soccer team that played who couldn't make the boys regular soccer team. So 
us handful of girls, we knew we were better than a third of the guys on the soccer team. So we knew we <laughs> could make a stop on the soccer team. Um, and of course that was a whole hoo-ha and there were, we were getting comments in the hallway and the school wasn't sure what to do. And at some point they were like, all right, well, let you, you know, why don't you come to a couple practices and we'll see how it go. And uh, myself and two other girls that were really pushing to be in this, we'd be in the hallway and I'd get shoved into a locker saying like, you think that hurt, right? Wait until you're out on the soccer field or when it's a gym. So it's the indoor, it's on a basketball court. So I don't have any soft grass to fall onto. And I'm like, fine, bring it, dude, <laughs> be on the yeah. soccer field. And so we did, we went and we played on the team and right. Like I was getting slammed into a wall, but let me tell you, we took out a couple dudes in the process as well, too. <laughs> we our little heart out, but it was a big deal. It's interesting. The following year, they didn't fund it. So I think that was how they resolved the issue. We're not going to deal with this boy and girl issue with indoor soccer. We're just going to get rid of indoor soccer. That was one of the things was that, right? Like for me, it was the boys are going to get it first and then we'll think about whether we want to fund the girls. But I will say the other side was, I always wondered why boys had to ask girls on dates and while the, why the boys had to pay for the date. Cause I didn't think that was fair on the other side <laughs> as well. Cause I've always been like, if we're looking for equity, shouldn't I like, shouldn't it not be strange for me to go up and ask a boy out and why can't I pay? <laughs> Those were the things rolling around in my head in high school. I, it, Lena, it took me to college to be able to catch up with 14 year old you as the <laughs> political and socioeconomic aspects of so my Western New York experience didn't land me in the, the context that you were having to grow up in, but still there were just things like, it just wasn't right. And for me, I've just always had this internal compass around fairness and I may not be able to put words to it, but I will have an emotional and like just guttural reaction to a situation that tells me something's off. And so that's what I was all fired up as a kid. So anyways, that's our compelling question. I love our, that. Yeah, so we will put it on. People should really think yeah. about that. I want to add, like, I had a conversation with some other feminists recently about if they remember the first time they were uh, touched in a way that they didn't want or that made them mm. uncomfortable. And that was a question that dug up so many painful stories. It was unbelievable. Just to say that when you start to ask women these kinds of questions, it is amazing how much we've internalized about the feelings of discomfort and the stuff we've had to endure and the inequalities and the lack of fairness, as you've said, uh, that we've had to carry for our whole lives. No, now I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Right? Putting that out there is a yeah. question. It's extremely painful. Yes. Actually, we should. We could put a twofer out, Mila, because yeah. I know we'll you were just... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, we are, we are going to put these questions on social media so our audience can share with us. And then also it will give us some time to think about it. Yeah. Uh, I can think about something from my 20s, but I know that if I really think about it, there's probably something earlier, right? Like, yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, standing in the parking lot, waiting for the bus to go to a soccer match, wearing a skirt, and some dude comes out and pulls my skirt down. So there you go. Mm -hmm. it's amazing and you you open that box up and oh you wish you never had because the things that come out are shocking and what you've internalized and accepted and and denied and negated and tried to overcome that never leaves you 
Yeah. That is the biggest form of injustice. I keep saying like all the work that we do on women's rights and equality, that's awesome. It's great. And it's so important. But if we're talking about quotas in place for women's representation in, in the C-suite or in whatever, that's great. But all of that stuff is not going to happen unless we are safe in our homes, yeah. in our bodies, in schools, on the street, in public places, in public office. For me, that's why ending violence against women is like the starting point, but it's the non-negotiable starting point. Because if you're not safe, all the opportunities in the world will, you won't be able to access them. Yeah, there was, Mila and I were both on this webinar that was sponsored by this organization called Voice, which we'll be highlighting on our website when it launches, but their question, and I know this question has been put out there in other formats, which was, if there was a 24-hour moratorium on violence against women, what would you do that you don't do today? It was really quite fascinating and interesting what people put out there, and especially the- And set. And sad, mm. yeah, very sad. Especially when you Absolutely. put the contextual wrap around that, like for different cir um, circumstances, like everything as simple as, right? Like I would actually be able to walk around the lake with my headphones on to, to much more extreme situations and scenarios, so. Yeah, that became a TikTok challenge. Yeah, and that was uh, very sad to hear. That was very sad to hear all those, yeah, those responses. Exactly, because we live our lives with restricted freedom. We live our lives with curbed mobility and access and less voice and less choice and less opportunity and this constant burden that our security is our own responsibility and if anything happens it's our fault and call me when you get home and tell me you're okay and don't go yeah. to the bathroom alone and don't go here and don't wear that and don't put your music on too loud. I mean, really? Yeah. Anything else yeah. that we should remember? Yeah, and then yeah. and the, and then the thing is that also uh, when we talk about violence against women and being safe, actually people think it is, that violence is, let's say, quote unquote, only when you are hit or when you are. But that is not <laughs> violence. Exactly. I mean, that is violence, obviously, but that is not what we're talking about. There are so many things. There are microaggressions. There are aggressions. There are words that actually sting as as a, as a punch. So I think that those are things that we have a lot to talk about. And there is many other podcasts exactly. that we can do on Absolutely. that. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's funny, this term microaggressions, because it's got a macro impact. It's, oh, uh, yeah. It curbs your entire life. Somebody gives you the, a look that makes you uncomfortable or makes a sound that feels icky to you. You probably won't walk that street again. You won't go to the water cooler alone again. You won't do a hundred things. So already your life is shrinking, you know, you're, and you end up living in this tiny space and that's not what women deserve. No. They deserve all the space and all the freedom. Yes. On that note, let's pivot back to our, our top, the F word topic and around feminism and being a feminist, because a lot of that is about reclaiming that space for us. So we're, we've got a bunch of questions. Mila and I will throw out a couple of questions here and we'll tackle these together, but I'd love to get things started with just a bit of a round robin to see who actually out of the three of us, do we all call ourselves a feminist? Do you know, we have iterations of it. So the question is, do you call yourself a feminist? Why or why not? And before we answer the question, I'll buy you both a little time to think about it. I was watching this documentary called Feminists, What Were They Thinking? And in this documentary, one of the women being interviewed said, I feel like when I'm asked if I'm a feminist, that it's a trick question, which I thought was fascinating. So no trick behind it from me. Do you call yourself a feminist? And if so, when did you start considering yourself one? Lena, you've shared a little bit about that, but why don't we round robin a little bit to see where everybody's at? Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. No doubt. That's the only <laughs> thing I call myself 
comfortably. That's the only thing I call myself that is a fixed part of my identity. Everything else is fluid. All the other aspects are not important to me. It's this. And I, when I learned the word, that's when I had that aha moment. And I said, yes, this is me. And the idea that it's a bad word, I think is just so funny because people actually don't understand, first of all, that men actually can be feminist and they should be. And if they not, they're not paying attention or they're just, I don't want to use any profanity on a podcast, but put a, put a, add some profanity in there. I was like, feel um, free, feel free. Oh, oh, really? Then I think <laughs> we've just, already put forgiveness like, in podcast one. So it's oh, all have you. Oh, that's, oh, that's good. So the idea, first of all, that men can be feminist is for me a no brainer. And the other thing is that women can and should act in their own best interest. Equality is a given for all of us and we should not even have to fight for it. And the fact that we do makes us feminist because how can we live in a world where a little more than half of the population is treated as, as second-class citizens. That's something I don't accept. So of course I'm a feminist for that reason and a bazillion more. It's interesting <laughs> that you started with, hell yeah, because there's, uh, it will post this, there was a Guardian article and I would tell you that the questionnaire is super leading, but anyways, it was, uh, am I a feminist and what type of feminist am I kind of thing? And it said that I was a hell yeah feminist when I got the oh, results okay. back. So Funny. you and I are similar. And I, you know, and for me, I, it's see what you said. It's a no brainer, right? Absolutely. And actually, I think the t-shirt I have, oh no, I, I almost wore my feminist as fuck t-shirt. <laughs> Oh, uh, for today's today's podcast, because I'm I'm I have no problem. I am super proud to wave that flag. And every once in a while, somebody somebody close to me will say something, and I have no problems with making a correction or reframing it. And they look, ah, I knew you were going to say that. I'm like, well, if you knew I was going to say that, why didn't you say something different? Why didn't you reframe what you were going to say? Why perpetuate all of these things to your earlier comment that box us in and make our, our space smaller? So yeah, that's where I am. Mila, how about you? <laughs> She's looking for confrontation. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know, Mila, a conversation we should have is how does this translate into other languages? It's one of those funny words. When you put it in another language in another context, it loses the power and the punch in many ways and people get confused. Anyway. Yeah, the, no, now I can call myself a feminist or now I would call myself a feminist, but I'm not like a hell of a feminist like you guys. That was not my first, let's say, reaction. And it has a lot to do of how I grew up and my upbringing and what I saw. So for example, in my cultural context, I never saw growing up, I, I never saw anything that was not equal. I never perceived that. And so, for example, my parents, they both work. They were both work outside of uh, the home. There was a moment, actually, that my mother had a lot more, like a better position than my father did. My father was always washing the dishes, doing the laundry. I mean, there was total equality in my house. And for example, when I grew up, I had boys, cousins that were older than me. I was the first one to graduate high school and I was 15 years old. So I was so let's say in a way, quote unquote, successful for a 15 year old high school graduate. And I went into medical school. So, you know, there was nothing that I was not able to do. I never saw that my gender was a limitation. For me, my limitation was my own mind and my own uh, work ethic. So I never saw it in my context growing up. I was in a way sheltered because my family was very, they were very much taking care of us. And then we were in, a, we had a bus that would go from the school to the house, from the house to the school. 
because that was the way it was a medium class family. We didn't have a lot of means, but we had a life very much in, in our family. So I didn't have too many chances to have these kind of encounters with people that were feeling not equal to others. I also went to a Catholic all-girls school for high school. I never saw anything that let me believe that I couldn't do anything. And the way that, that my parents treated me and they treated my brothers, it was exactly the same way. I thought I, I never com was confronted to that. And then maybe I started when I was uh, working, then I started seeing certain differences. But again, my bosses were always women. So I, I never saw that. So for me, the feminism and then what you hear and then you start seeing the news, then everything that I always related to feminism were the feminists. And uh, the, the ones that were like, you have to put men down for us to succeed. And I had always a problem with that because for me, and then everybody can have their own, their own uh, way of thinking. But for me, uh, the, the fact that I want to have equal rights doesn't mean that they have lower, uh, less rights than us. So we just have to elevate ourselves to the same level. We just don't have to push them down to do that. And it is the same with, with race. It is not that uh, a Latina, uh, that a white woman has to have less uh, salary than a, that, that to, to get to a Latina woman's salary. It is that we both have to have the same salary as a white man. So that is what, for me, it took me a long time to get to call myself a feminist just because of the image that I had associated when I was growing up. So that is a long answer. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting that makes though, because, a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and because of some of the things you're sharing, I, I do want to go back to the quote that was in that film. So the piece about whenever she's asked if she's a feminist, she thinks it's a trick question. So I'd love to cut because there's things that we've all said that would lead to like why people would potentially bait us into this conversation or take us down a path. So I guess what is your reaction when people call you a feminist or ask you if you're a feminist? And there is always something to the way they ask you it, but... How do you think about that when people, and or like just in the context of her saying, I think it's a trick question. I think there are different feminisms and it's the yeah. idea is about choice and it's about your right to interpret that any way that you want. The people I think are very narrow in how they want to understand it. The like naysayers would say, well, look at you wearing lipstick and heels and <laughs> lingerie. And how can you call yourself a feminist? That's my feminism. And that's my brand of feminism that I choose to adopt. Yeah. And I still can choose to have any sexual orientation, any gender identity, any profession, any attire, any activity, anything that I want. And that is what my feminism means, including if I choose to stay home, have babies or you know, yeah. have puppies as the case may be with me. Exactly. If I go bake a pie, that doesn't mean I'm not a feminist. That just means I like to bake pie. It's not complicated. And I, I don't, I like to make cookies. I like to eat cookies. That's another story. The point is, I mean, <laughs> and blueberries. Exactly. And you can express that in any way that you want, and you should have the right to and the freedom to. And the idea is we are trying to rectify what is a historic imbalance that you cannot deny. The fact that we have always been viewed as less than in terms of salary, you can look at it dollar for dollar, in terms of access, freedom, space, position, power, politics whatever. It doesn't take a genius to see it. And if people aren't seeing it or aren't acknowledging it, they either are just crazy deniers or they're asleep. 
They have no idea what's going on in the world. How many women have been heads of state? How many women have been CEOs? How many, look at the numbers, they don't lie. They'll tell you right in front of your face. So the idea that anybody could deny the fact that we live in a global context of inequality is uh, an idiot or asleep. Um, yeah, you know. not paying attention, not paying attention at all. Not paying attention. And that should make you angry. And I, you know, I also want to say it doesn't take, for your average guy, it doesn't take relationship to a woman, my mother, my sister, my daughter, my whatever, my, my female houseplant, to suddenly empathize with women. It is precisely because we are all human, regardless of what's between our legs. It is not about my crotch that determines what I can and can't do and how you should view me. And as a result, my crotch doesn't have to be associated with you, related to you, controlled by you, a dog, no. whatever. It, I am entitled regardless of my relationship to you. And yeah. the other idea is men who say, now I'm afraid of you because you're a feminist, or I can't be in the elevator with you because you're going to me too me. No, you fuckwit. That's not the point. If, <laughs> I, if I was a man in an elevator, would you pinch my ass and say that skirt looks great on your peach? Yeah. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. why would you do it? To, what's the difference? I, I want to give men credit. They're not as stupid as they play themselves to be. So let's see some of that. Let's see some of that smart come out let's see some be an ally be a champion be a supporter wake up so Mila what about you what how do you feel about either being asked if you're a feminist or or if or being called a feminist I think it's uh, contextual I think that right now I would be like if somebody's using it like uh, as a as a insult quote unquote yeah uh, I would actually even be more uh, notorious saying yes I am and I wear it with the badge of honor but if people are just uh, trying to find out and understand what it is then I will say it and I will be happy to have a conversation and say what kind of brand of feminism I am as Lena uh, was talking about. And that has a lot to do, again, with the, the context and the cultural context where I'm coming from. I remember saying this to somebody that I didn't really call myself a feminist. And then this woman looked at me like I was, you know, crazy. How dare you? And I'm like, what? How dare you say I was not a feminist? Like, hell yeah, feminist. And, and I said, we all have different experiences. And I'm actually very much a feminist, but I'm not your kind of feminist, so, but that yeah. doesn't exclude me. Right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting to, so to what you just said, because I'm going to combine my answer with kind of throwing something else out there as well. I just finished reading the book, Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay, and I'd watched her TED talk beforehand and then was inspired to read her book. And listeners will put links to her stuff in our podcast notes, but she talks a little bit about the standard that you have to live up to, to call yourself a feminist. So Tamila, your point, I'm not your type of feminist. I'm, I'm feminist in a way that's comfortable for me, but she says, her quote is, I'm a bad feminist because I never want to be placed on a feminist pedestal. People who are placed on pedestals are expected to pose perfectly. Then they get knocked off when they fuck it up. I regularly fuck it up. Consider me already knocked off. And that's how I feel because I think for me, I went through this stage where I felt like I had to read every feminist manifesto to actually legitimately call myself a feminist. I was a bad feminist if I couldn't quote all of these folks. And if you could see my desk and behind me right now, you would see the collection of books that are from that. But I'm going to, to lead on what you said. It's so obvious 
the inequities and that there is progress that must be made. And so for me, yes, hell yeah, I'm a feminist and I'm going to do my darndest to do what I can related to those. But by the way, I'm going to mess up, quote unquote, mess up, because I'm not totally sure what messing up is. But anyways, I have thoughts on her comment about the feminist pedestal and, and having to be perfect, whatever perfect is for being a feminist. <laughs> That's when you're holding yourself up to the ideals of other people who want you to be this, like the postcard feminist. But that, if that's not your definition of what being a feminist means, then to hell with that. I mean, what's important to me personally is that I don't fall from the, the pedestal, if you will, to use the metaphor that I have placed for myself. Like what kind of feminist do I want to be? What are Lena's feminist standards? And am I abiding by those? Am I doing what I think is right? Am I doing using my power in the way that it, that serves myself and serves this cause as much as I can? You know, that's that for me is what's important. And if I stray from that personally, that's a goal I've set for myself, and that's where um, you know I feel like I, I've been knocked off. But that's me measuring myself, and nobody needs to know that. And let no one ever tell you what type of feminist you should be and how to live by the standards that they expect. Because what we're facing right now is like a social justice war. It's a hierarchy of oppression. As if people are like, that's not good enough. And what about this? And what about that? And what about all these other issues? That you feel strongly about that? You do it. I feel strongly about this issue. That's what I've chosen to take on. This is how I'm taking it on. And see you later. The yeah. end. Yeah. There's enough issues to go around for all of us. Exactly. And I think people spend a lot more time pointing fingers and they actually do using those fingers for something meaningful. And I can make suggestions about where they might stick those fingers, actually. <laughs> but again, I'm really, try really trying to be polite here. Look at Twitter just or any social media. Just say something about being a feminist. And I can just look at my watch, TikTok. And I'll get a dozen comments back about what type of feminist I am, what type of penis I might need, and where they think they should put it. And it happens all the time. And what oh my God. Yep. Yeah, yep. It, it's amazing. It's amazing. Just to and reinforce so the point that we all need to do something. <laughs> right? It's incredible. There is, there really is so much venom and vitriol when it comes to this. I don't understand why I'm not able to express my commitment to this issue, my strong feelings about it, because first of all, it affects me personally. Second of all, I, I see it happening all around me. And third, I feel like I have a duty to, to do something about it. If I said to you guys, I'm really into lions and lions are important to me and I want to focus on lions and I don't know, maybe they're endangered, maybe they're not, whatever. I believe in lions and that's my cause. You're not going to stand up and tell me what about tigers and bears, you asshole. You're really <laughs> not. You're just going to let me work on lions, right? Well, and you're going to respect might, my commitment. But... Somebody might, and I'm going to, and I'm going to mute them and hooray for muting them. So I'm going to block, I'm going to mute, I'm going to delete. Adios. Because that's just not the kind of commentary I need. I judge myself based on my commitment to lions to continue that metaphor. And that's what I'm going to do with my life. And people are always going to poo-poo your party, but they're just not going to be invited to my party. Well, intersectionality <laughs> between a lot of these issues that when you start chipping away at one, you help chip away at another one that somebody else or another group of people are putting a hundred percent of their mm -hmm. effort to, but gets maybe 10% of you because you're chipping away a hundred percent on something else that has some intersectionality. Mila, I'm sorry. Uh -huh. What were you, what were you? No, that's okay. 
No, what, what Lina was saying before of the pointing the fingers, I actually thought about an example on the other way. So they are pointing also the fingers, not only at how you should be as a feminist, but also at the people that are living a different life and going against the feminist values, let's say, and they are pointing the fingers to these people and they're actually giving it more attention and bringing it more to the surface instead of just passing it on and saying, okay, and then not give them the platform for people to continue just giving these crazy ideas. There is the case now of a woman is a... Uh, TikToker or whatever is Latin American. I don't know where she's from, but there is this video going around. And then I have received it from six, seven different people. And I'm saying, do not forward this woman anymore. Nobody needs to hear what she's saying because she's ridiculous. I, I said to my friend, we don't need to talk about her. She's one of the wives from the Handmaid's Tale that is completely cuckoo. So then let's just not give her any more platform. So just forget about her. Just put her in, in a drawer and forget about that because yeah. you cannot convince her. So then just put her out. Yeah. So and then, don't, don't elevate her in the same process. Exactly. Don't elevate it. Just go, just continue doing what you're doing and continue believing what you're believing. So, yeah. I do have, so we're going to go to our Did You Know segment in just a moment, but I do have one last question. And I think Lena, you inspired this question on one of our earlier phone calls when we had started talking about this podcast, which is, where does feminism start? Like, if, for example, is it about bodily autonomy? Is it about financial independence? Is it about equality? I don't know that it's an either or, but and maybe it's different for all three of us. As far as if you're going to tackle anything, you got to start with this bundle or this issue. I don't know. It's not that clean to me, but I thought I'd put that out. I think you can take any space that you occupy and make it feminist. So what I don't want to do is make it impossible for people to act on any feminist interest that they might have because they don't have access to political power or policy reform or whatever, to making economic change. Take what, wh whether you are at home with your siblings or in a school or, or in the C-suite, take that space and make it feminist. You can do that. So there's a everybody can and everybody must aspect to this work. But also for me personally, like I said, the idea of starting with bodily autonomy and integrity, freedom from violence, what is the most important thing, because if you fear for your life, for your physical safety, if you fear that you will be raped going to school, to work, to the market, to whatever, you cannot access any of the other beautiful opportunities that life affords you. So I would say that's where I've chosen to start, but that's not to say that there aren't other things that are important. And in fact, at the end of the day, it's going to be working on all fronts for yeah. all of us. That's going to make the real change. And when I did and I did a TED talk many years ago and I said, it was TEDx. And I said, what's the message I want to give to people? What am I supposed to say after all this work and work on the front lines and war zones and whatever, what do I want to tell people? And then the tagline from that and the message was start where you stand. Be yeah. Meaning whatever space you've got, the home, the school, the you know grocery store, I don't care. Take that space and start to build the change in your little sphere of influence. That kind of change is going to make a difference. Why? Because you're from the inside. Those are your people. That's your little circle. That's your posse. That's your tribe. You're going to have a stronger influence on them than you would flying off to you know, some far-flung country and 
advocating for reform or telling people to stop doing what they're doing, that's going to be less effective than the change that comes from the inside. And it makes it easier. It makes it accessible. I keep comparing to the environment. Like if you want to work on environmental issues, you decide that the environment is your thing. Are you going to jump off and like hop on a, a Greenpeace ship to Antarctica right away? Or are you going to <laughs> strap yourself to a tractor on day one? No, you can just take your can of Coke from the trash and put it in the recycling <laughs> bin. Basta. It's so simple. You know what I mean? Start where you are with what you've got. Like people think that being an activist means that you've got to throw your body in front of the moving bus. Oh, for God's sake. Just pay attention, educate yourself and do the things that are useful and right in, in, in where you are. And that's already awesome. And behavior is contagious. So you might as well make it good. It's right? like so building a muscle, right? I don't walk into the gym tomorrow and run an hour on the treadmill at a five minute mile and lift a 180 pounds eggs. over my head. <laughs> Neil, what about you? Like, where does it start for you? I know what I feel, but. I think uh, if I say, if I look at this, I'm going to look at a general point of view. So I think it also has to do with the context and where you are. So for example, if we're talking about the Western society, maybe feminism should well, start or continue more of the equality and financial independence. And in societies that are more restrictive culturally, for many reasons, maybe body really autonomy, that is more important because there are no laws there, even though the U.S. is supposed to be yeah. one of the, <laughs> one of the places yeah. that is more yeah. developed and is, uh, it is having... <laughs> Is, is problems there. So I think it has to do with that. For me right now and in the environment that I am in, I think it's more of an equal opportunity and the understanding and gaining allies and making men as allies because I don't think that they realize that there is a, a that there is a still a problem. I think that they look around and they say, wow, we are super developed. We are very libertarian society. So they think that there is no problem with, with gender equality, but I think there is. And there is also a big pressure of society for the traditional gender roles. And I was talking to some friends a month ago or so, and we were talking about that. And I was saying, you know what? I think that actually Dutch men are also very traditional gender roles. So anyway, for me, it is now in the space that I am in is uh, equality. Yeah. I, I, so this is Lena to what you said, right? Do what you can within the space that you have. I think the topic gets, well, bodily autonomy gets me really fired up really fast, but I like <laughs> to me, the finance access to finances and financial independence, because if I can't actually open a bank account, like it has to be in my husband's name or it doesn't matter what money I make, it becomes his, it's not mine. If I can't buy property, if I can't engage in a contract, and depending on where you are in the world, the strictness and the regulations vary. But even if I think about it in the United States, the year I was born was the year that a woman could go get her own credit card. That's only 50 years ago in a Western country. And then even later to have their own sole bank account and to get a loan on a bank. I think about when Mark and I went to get the loan for this house that we're in. And the loan agent, he talked to Mark, he didn't talk to me and ah. he pulled up the bank account and the bank account that he pulled up was not the bank account that was going to pay for this house. 
it was mine. And I just let him hang there for a while because I'm like, I know he's trying to figure out how to tell us we can't get this loan. <laughs> and so finally, after a little bit, I said, um, excuse me. And I handed over my bank account information. And I said, you might want to pull up this account. And then he, oh, and when we walked out that day, I was like, they don't get to give us a loan. <laughs> like, uh, like it was the assumption that Mark was the primary breadwinner, that Mark held the financial assets and that Mark was who's, who was going to make the decisions. And that's our house. We do that stuff together. But I think, and that's right. And that's in the context of the U.S. I think as you look at different parts of the world, right? Like women being able to, it's let's do these microloans and give women funding. Yes. But if they can't actually put the money they make in their own name, what's the point? I know there's a bigger point to that, but still I, to me, like the whole financial independence thing to me is pretty important. Anyways, so that's our topics, our response to some of these earlier feminist questions. We have more in just a moment, but we want to pivot. So Mila, let me turn it over to you. It seems that we are just getting started, but we have been talking for a while and very interesting, but it's now time for our, did you know, segment. And for this segment, we felt like we had an opportunity to provide context and information on what has been and it is happening right now in Afghanistan, specifically around women's safety and rights. We are not going to hash out our views on whether we agree or disagree with the removal of troops from Af Afghanistan, but we do want to highlight and add context to the humanitarian horror that is playing out and has been in front of our eyes. Our dear friend Lena has spent significant time there and can provide us some additional context and share some organizations we can look to if we want to help. In addition, Lena was recently interviewed on CNN to get her perspective on the current situation. We have posted in the podcast notes as well if, as well, if you would like to view it after listening to the podcast. Lena, I'll give it over to you. Oh, thank you so much. Now a very sobering note because what we're seeing in Afghanistan is something that uh, has happened so fast, unraveled so quickly, but we could have pre predicted, we could have prevented. Mm -hmm. So the problem of this power vacuum and the sudden swoop of the Taliban taking these countries, these uh, cities in Afghanistan, not hardly by using any force, just walking in and taking over has been horrific. And what that means, that is a tragedy for Afghanistan as a whole after two decades of attempts at nation building and supposed support by the international community. But my concern is what this means for Afghan women and girls, because at the end of the day, that's the lens through which I view the world. And that is uh, the barometer by which all interventions should be judged. And what we know all around the world, everywhere, is that any chance a country has of peace and prosperity and progress isn't measured by the type of government or by the type of the economy. It's measured by how the country treats its women. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. we are talking about a return to draconian rule, the quote unquote gender apartheid of the Taliban regime, we are in a lot of trouble. Anybody who has seen images of Afghans leaving in droves, holding yeah. onto airplanes and tumbling to their death, that means people are desperate to get out. Nobody does that. Yeah. Unless yeah. They, no. they feel like they have no choice. And right now we're just not doing enough. We didn't do, and I say international community, we, everybody yeah. didn't pull out smartly. The U.S. definitely is responsible and Afghan lives are at risk and the lives of Afghan women and girls under the Taliban are extremely precarious. 
they are the Taliban right now is going door to door looking for Afghan women activists, mm-hmm. educators, women who were outspoken against the Taliban. That is a lot of women because in these yep. two decades of feigned peace, they believed it was safe for them to do so, to exercise their voice, to take advantage of opportunities. And it turned out that was a, very fragile and it was false. And now look what has happened. Yep. Yep. It's, I was watching, I don't even remember what news source I was watching, but the people just frantically, like it, trying to get the visas, trying to get the exits out of the country. And this one woman they were interviewing, she's got a young boy and she's trying to get her son out of there because she knows what his fate is. And then to your point about the activists and the educators, and we'll highlight one in just a moment, is if they weren't helping a country, perhaps... What are their opportunities? What are their options to try and get out of that country? Because their fates are very dismal at this moment. Are there, Lena, are there, I think sitting in different parts of the world, I think people have different amounts of context for sure, but understanding of what they might be able to do, or if they're sitting there looking at the television screen, feeling like they'd like to help out, but feeling helpless in that ability to do so. Is there anything you would suggest or recommend or anywhere you might point them to get started? Absolutely. What I've been doing is looking at organizations I know, vetting organizations, highlighting the organizations I trust uh, that are respected and credible and doing good work. And they are putting a call out for funds because, yes, they need money. So uh, they need money to create safe spaces and shelters. They need money for visas, for emergency evacuation, for protection, for whatever else. And I would strongly encourage people to look at those links and people can follow me on Twitter and I'm sure you'll post that in the notes as well yeah. uh, about what kind of information there is and how they can support. And it's really important that we do that, that we rally behind these organizations and channel the funds that we know are gonna get to the right place, to the local NGOs, to Afghan women and girls directly. When it comes to evacuations and visas and all of that business, right now there is a lot of, let's say the, the majority of the opportunities that are available are for those Afghan men and women who are affiliated with the US or with another country government or have provided some support over the last two decades. And my concern is that there's not enough of the support and evacuation opportunities, visa help and fees and flights and whatnot for ordinary Afghans, Afghan women and girls whose very lives are at risk. And so that's what I'm trying to compile and highlight and share now. And I am working, so in addition to doing that as a kind of clearinghouse of information as much as I can be, I think the more we disseminate this and the more we talk about it, the better. One thing I wanna say also is that we are really ADD as a a race, as humans, when it comes (laughs) to these issues. Today we think, oh boy, Afghanistan, and we're all over it for about 48 hours. And then we get bored and we switch on to something else and we're like, oh man, do I really have to wear a mask in Starbucks? This is so annoying. And switch on to other things because we're simple and dumb, all of us. But the point is, this is not going to be solved anytime soon. And we need, this is America's longest war, quote unquote. The response, the relief, the support, the damage control of America's longest war is going to take a long time, right? Possibly as long as the war itself. Don't get bored so fast world. This needs a lot of help. It's not going anywhere. It is only going to get worse. And what we're hearing and seeing is absolutely shocking. Yeah, it's it's shocking what we're seeing, but it's also the ADD that you are talking about. It has to do for some people with the, the fact that it's a horror that they don't want to see and they just look away just because they don't know what to do. They think that they cannot help. 
that is why it's, it's very good that we are going to post these organizations that you are sharing with us for people to actually be able to do something about it. People just try to go back to their lives and think that doesn't concern them, but they can do something, at least supporting these organizations that are in the ground and they are trying to collaborate and then do whatever they exactly. can in an in a unbelievable situation. Exactly. Everybody has power. Everybody has an opportunity to do something. And the idea is to break it down and make it manageable and still meaningful. Do, do good work in bite-sized chunks, right? It's the theory of the Greenpeace ship. Am I looking around? Am I Googling for the next ship departing to Antarctica? No, I'm not. I am taking my dollars and I'm putting them somewhere where they can have an impact. Or I'm calling a you know, public official or I'm petitioning that or I'm retweeting something. There are useful things you can do with the space and time and resources you have. It doesn't, be, it doesn't have to be a grand gesture where you swoop into Afghanistan in a helicopter and pick up all the children you can carry. No, relax. That's the thing. I think people feel like the need is so great and they become overwhelmed yeah. and they're in a kind of paralysis about this situation. But you know, we're making this manageable. And the idea is, you know, at the end of the day, nobody knows better than the people who are implicated, and that is Afghan women and girls. I happened to land on Afghanistan as an issue in Afghan women in 1996. That's a long time wow. ago. Yes. That was the time the Taliban took over Kabul. And people were like, Afghanistan, where's that? Wait, Borka, what's that? What's going on here? And everybody was like, whoop, excited for a couple minutes. I continued working on Afghan women until I got a chance to go there in 2002. And I lived there until 2006. So I lived there for four years. I did my doctoral research while I was there. I wrote a book on it while I was there. And now I'm in the process of updating that book because of what has happened, because I want to complete the story of 20 years of intervention and so-called occupation and what type of liberation, quote unquote, that's actually achieved for women. So there's a lot. There are a lot of resources. There's opportunities and there's avenues. But the bottom line of my book, my research, my work, and all of it is that Afghan women have agency and they know exactly what they need. And our job right now is to shut up and listen and deliver on those needs. I totally, well, and I think people, I think a lot of people who haven't really explored what's happening over there go, it's never going to change. It's never going to change. But to your earlier point, there was change happening. There were educators and activists and community leaders that were making progress and one of the, our, this morning, our dear, a close friend of all three of ours, Satyam, who was in our program with us, he tagged us in a post. I think you might've even posted this as well, mm -hmm. highlighting a street artist in Afghanistan named uh, Hassani. Um, and her artwork is, it's stunning and beautiful and hopeful. She's born in April, 1988. Oh my God, young thing. I was graduating from high school. <laughs> um, She's the first female graffiti artist in Afghanistan, and through her artwork, she's portraying Afghan women in a male-dominant society. And her art is giving Afghan women a different face, a face with power and ambitions and willingness to achieve their goals. The woman character that's used in her artwork portrays a human being who is proud, loud, and can bring positive change to mm. people's lives. And during the last decade of the post-war um, era in Afghanistan, her work has brought in a huge wave of color and appreciation to all the women in the country. And she's inspired thousands of women around the world and has given a new hope to female Afghan artists in the country, of which is all about to be wiped away, right? Yeah. Like, with yeah. the Taliban. So the ramifications of what's happening right now for folks like 
for you know individuals like Shamsia and the activists and artists and educators and leaders are in a week being silenced by the Taliban. So we would love if all our listeners would take a moment, go to the podcast notes or visit our social media pages, find Lena on Twitter, find those links to the organizations and just, if anything, educate yourself. But if you got a fire in your belly about trying to help, figure out how to, to Lena's earlier thing, what can you do in your space? <laughs> um, and what do you have the ability to do to help and to shed some light on what's going on? And we'll also post uh, artwork. It is, it's so beautiful. Um, yeah. Oh, it's so powerful. I know. It makes me want to cry. This whole situation makes me want to cry, actually. Yeah, of course. And thank you so much, Lena, for sharing these with our audience. We know how much time and passion you have dedicated throughout your life to fighting for women around the world and in Afghanistan. So we appreciate you sharing with our audience all your knowledge and all your passion about it. You are doing a great job right now, documenting everything that is happening and actually teaching people about your time there and about your thoughts of what uh, women are going through. What's important to me is like, I believe that Afghan women have a voice and I'm not the voice for them. What I think is that everybody has a voice, but they might not necessarily have a microphone. So what I'm trying to do is do what I can with what I've got. If I have five people who are listening to me, Afghan women, and the needs they have to those five, pe five people who might be listening. And if one of those five takes action, that's already amazing and wonderful. And that's just what I believe is my job. World. that's great and that multiplies so that is, that is yeah. great thank you for that yeah so i'm going to do a hard pivot back to our conversation before the did you know segment regarding the perspectives and philosophies on feminism and as a society tends to do all feminists get thrown into the same bucket so the one thing that i would like to talk about right now and to throw out a few questions posed by a conservative women's site in the u.s Questions they are asking radical feminists to respond to, and perhaps we can take a pass at, uh, at a few of them. They want to be a little bit provocative, but they are being a little bit ridiculous from our point of view, or from my point of view anyway. So um, how is pro-abortion supporting equality for all, mother, father, and baby? <laughs> oh, okay. These are like... These are the things that they ask. Questions for me. Yeah, okay, fair. And we get that a lot. You know, yeah. I would say the idea is about whatever you want to do with your body. And that includes what you do with the fetus that you are incubating. The right of the, for me, the right of the woman, her right to decide, her right to choose, her bodily autonomy and integrity trumps, I'm sorry to use that word, vocabulary, any, any supposed right of an unborn fetus. This is not an independent, free, breathing, existing child. This is an extension of your own body. So the idea of you being able to decide whether, when, how many to have children, what kind of children, who to marry, how to have sex, all that stuff, that's up to you. That's up to the individual. No one can legislate, restrict, deny, negate that. And that's how, that is how I feel. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> Lena, you threw out an interesting question when we were talking about this before, which is, can you be a feminist and be pro-life? That is a great question. And well, some people argue yes, but I have a very hard time with holding those two seeming contradictory thoughts. I want to say that feminism looks different and acts different, but I firmly believe that my 
my feminism includes full bodily autonomy and integrity and the right to decide, the freedom of choice for every single aspect of my life. So the point is not, will I have an abortion? Did I have I? Do I want to? That's yeah. not the point, nor is it anyone's business. What is the point is that you cannot place limitations on that choice. Just like you cannot place limitations on my choice of work or my choice of nail polish or my choice of attire. You cannot do that. It, you can make the same argument with the Taliban and uh, want to still wear it. They are welcome to wear it and that is their choice, but it should never be enforced by law. You cannot do that to somebody's body. So yeah, no, I agree. Argument. Actually, I was thinking about these, what you just asked, Katie, but I do know feminists that are against abortion. And I don't like to use pro-life because I think that it's not pro-life, it's basically our pro-choice are also pro-life. It's just that they believe in that they could do the abortion. But anyway, it's a high, it's a hijacking of words. And it's yeah, exactly. Uh, right. It, it's what confounds the the question and the conversation, right? Yeah. There's some other pieces from that. I think and to, to what you were saying with right people that have been anti-abortion that you believe are feminists, as long as you are not against my abortion, if I choose or my right to have it, then yeah. I, like the, you can be against it as long as you're not making a law that makes it impossible for other people to have the ability to make this choice if it's the right choice for them and their circumstances in the situation so yeah and that I have had that conversation in my family I have a family that is religious that is against abortion if I would wanted to have an abortion I would have had it would you think less of me and then they stare at me and they were like no okay so then that's fine so then you can believe what you believe and then I can believe what I believe as long as you are not making me believe what you believe. And you said, yeah. yeah, I'm going to, since we're being controversial, I'm going to jump to one of the other questions they talked about, which was when you say teach men not to rape, are you meaning to imply that men have been in the past taught to rape or that men are oh, the wow. only people capable of rape? <laughs> this is great. Okay. Here's the thing, what we do not teach in schools, in families, in religion, in society, in culture, on TV, wherever we absorb all our messages and we decide what is good and bad and wrong as humans is consent. Yeah. Everybody has a right to decide what to do with their own body. And that includes touching, uh, space, what all those kinds of things. And there are places and spaces, yes, absolutely, where men feel entitled to women's bodies in ways where you can say they have been taught that is their right, that they can rape because they deserve access to the sexuality of the woman who is affiliated with them or even not so, right? Look at challenges in passing legislation around marital rape. There are men still in this country and in every other who say, there's no such thing as marital rape. She's my wife, yeah. like that, I, I own that body. That Think about what that means. That means, if you are raped outside of marriage, that is illegal. You can, that people will understand maybe, except for they'll try and blame you a bazillion times. But it, once you get married, you have in effect signed away rights to your own body and said, you know what? 
You want to have sex. You don't need to ask. You just do. You take. Uh, my body exists for your sexual pleasure. And there are a lot of people who still believe those kinds of things. And again, rape is not about sex and pleasure as much as it is about, as it is about power, power and control. Yep. And often yep. putting women in their place. So the idea that is used as a form of control, as an abuse of power, as a violation of human rights, as the most egregious form of violence. Yes, I think men who are by and large the perpetrators, please, let's not bullshit here. Yeah. You know, this idea of, oh, but what about, no, shut up. Listen, it is <laughs> a fact. It is proven in statistics. We know it from anecdotes. We know it in our lives. I walk down the street and if there are three guys coming towards me, I will cross the street. The same experience does not apply to men. Never, ever, ever. So Spare me all of the, oh, you don't even know, and the numbers. No, I do know. I know, yeah. I feel it. I exist in a woman's body. That's enough. That justifies it enough for me. So the fact that exists as a form of violence and that we have to curb our, curb our behaviors in order to avoid, eliminate, prevent it, for me, is a massive problem because the blame needs to be put on the perpetrators. And they need to be held accountable, and they need to prevent it. They need to learn from the very beginning that... But that female bodies are not theirs to take, to access, to enjoy, to use, to dispose of. No, not acceptable, never, ever under any circumstance, in no form. Yeah. The power yeah. thing is, the power thing is the core, right? It's also why there's a question in here about, about aren't you concerned about real men having their lives ruined for false accusations and those pieces? And I, yes, I am concerned about that. I am, I have a heightened concern about the amount of victims and survivors who are not listened to because we are concerned about the exception <laughs> when those other circumstances happen. And, and I mean, you'd think, but, but based on that fear, oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, you'd think based on that fear of being falsely accused and your lives ruined, you'd think that women have access to justice and the rule of law yeah. and that people are actually treated well and with respect and that the, and the criminal is brought to justice. That hardly ever happens in, in this country and in every other. There yeah. is no woman on earth who would choose to go through that process of being re-victimized to only to lose a case and to end up with a Stanford swimmer story where the guy doesn't eat his steak and daddy says he's so upset and he ends up sitting for three months in jail and give me a fucking break. No woman yeah. would go through that process, violate herself, share her experience, let her life be dissected and torn apart by people who want to know everything that's ever been in her crotch. For what? I mean, falsifying claims for who does that is the minority of cases and i think yeah. it's comical men's exaggerated worry for their own lives and careers and their name please yeah the audacity of the men like i remember the brent kavanaugh in the congress saying oh. i drink beer and i drink beer and then he was completely <laughs> humiliated yes i can have a couple of beers i don't even remember the name of the doctor oh. and she was i mean the, the lady that actually accused him which i think she was totally uh, uh, right in accusing him and he was completely oh my god the audacity of being completely shamed and saying oh my god you are going to ruin me 
So mm -hmm. I mean, it, even in this country, you know, and I keep saying that because it's important because people like to other this kind of violence and say, oh, that doesn't happen here. We're so civilized. No, we're not. That's a lie. Yeah. I mean, it took yeah. how many women gymnasts to I know. convict Larry Nasser. How many voices did it take? If it was one or two, people would be like, oh, girls, he's a doctor. You were young. You don't remember. They would have dismissed it. They would have patronized them. They would have denied it. The patriarchy is in power here. And that's true everywhere. And the legal system is no exception. It took dozens of them coming forward to say, yep, this is totally right for everybody to be like, damn, that must be true if so many have said it. Yeah. Why could well, you leave just one? Why is that yeah. never good enough? And Harvey Weinstein, right? Like, oh God, please. if you shift away from like, I, you can get me really, let's see, this will go to my, my financial independence thing. The, the, what the U.S. women's national soccer team has had to do to prove that they should be paid uh, commensurate to men's soccer players. I'm just like, folks, like, and here in the U.S., right? I'm like, they win more. Right? Exactly. Exactly. They kick, they kick the same damn ball across the same damn field. I mean, yeah, but, they, but, but women win more than men do <laughs> in the U.S. Huh? For the moment, the moment. All right, so let me ask, let me go to the frivolous question. Do you really think being able to walk around topless is a freedom that women need to live a good life? <laughs> oh my God, that is so funny. You know what? I want people to stop sexualizing breasts like the idea that women can't breastfeed in public because oh my god that's gross or kinky or oh it's going to turn me on or whatever please like how did you grow up on on coffee and and soda i don't think so you grew up going for the boob just like everybody else so spare <laughs> me the the gross and also spare women the fact that they have to cover up, hide, go to some nasty ass public bathroom or the back of some, what are shrouded in shame as if they're doing something that is wrong. We are, we're perverts when it comes to women's bodies. And that thing that we love this, like the virgin whore dichotomy. We want you to be in sexy lingerie, but we also want you to be demure. We want to see tits in the Victoria's Secret ad, but please don't put a baby on those. We can't Or handle. a curvy woman. God forbid you also, put a curvy. We live in this, like, we live in these comical, cartoony contradictions that fail to show the, like, diversity and depth of our lives. Like, my boobs are part of my body. They are part of it makes me female. They're part of anatomy. There are the size that they are they can be used for breastfeeding they can be used for lingerie they can be used for nothing at all that's not anybody's business but it's so refreshing actually when you go to some european beaches and you can just go topless why because people are like you know what men go to, i gotta see man nipples what's the difference why aren't they sexy they are not right why, why, can't, we just, why can't we just get over our little what's different between asking women to cover up their nipples, cover up their breasts, and cover up their bodies, or cover up their hair, or wear a burqa. What's the difference? Please tell me. Yeah, but the, but the other... <laughs> it's people saying, that's too sexy for me. You're turning me on, so cover up. I keep explaining it this way. If I'm on a diet, am I going to ask all the bakeries in New York City to close? Or am I going <laughs> to shut my damn mouth? Right? Am I going to be like, oh my God, 
but I can't walk by this bakery because I'm going to buy all these cookies. That might be true. But at the end of the day, I'm an independent, autonomous individual with agency. It's my responsibility to shut my fucking mouth and not buy it, right? Why is it so difficult when it comes to women's clothing? You know, it's let's cover them up because we can't take it. Funny with what you're saying that I, I there, there is this uh, video that is going viral or some photos that are going viral that is this woman that is breastfeeding in public in a restaurant and then a person, a guy or somebody tells her to cover up and then she actually took a little diaper or towel or whatever and she put it on her face. So she covered herself up. So, then, <laughs> so I thought that was great. But, but the other thing is, She should have uh, taken it and covered him up because you, you don't want to look, then you don't look. I no, mean, no, but it, was, but it was also very funny. I, you should cover up. Okay, I cover up. And then she covers her, 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 her head, uh, which is uh, very funny. And then obviously uh, hilarity ensues in the whole restaurant. Uh, but anyway, the other thing is that the, the question that these uh, people are posing is, being able to walk around topless is a freedom that women need to live a good life and the funny thing is nobody's asking for that first of all and at the same time i think that some of it is illegal and but there are some places that probably is illegal to be naked so then nobody is saying we want to make something like this legal or maybe there are some people that are doing it as well what is it up to you you shouldn't exactly. if you don't want to put to to show your boobs you won't And that's it. I don't mind exactly. if uh, somebody agrees. Yeah. No shirts, no shoes, no service, right? Okay. You walk into this restaurant, cover up your boobs, male, female, or other. Doesn't matter. Cover yourself. Yeah. Put on yeah. the shirt. <laughs> same, yeah. same. Thank you. But then it's also, I don't want to see hair coming out of the men's noses, for example. <laughs> But then do I want to, do, do I want to tell all men, oh, you should cut it up. Or, you know, that is like, Yeah, because it's, for me, it's disgusting, but everybody has their own fear. So if I see a man with the hair coming out of his nose on a public transport, for example, I just look away because it's disgusting for me. But that doesn't have to do with me regulating what people do or not do with their bodies. You did exactly. say, do I want to tell them all to shave their nose? I'm like, actually, yes, I do want to, but will I? No. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. You, you go ahead and braid it if you want to. I can look at <laughs> Okay, so I think we have been talking about some very serious things and it's good that we are ending in a lighter note right now with this joke. However, I would like to bring ourselves to the end of today's episode with our segment, our favorite segment that is called It Doesn't All Suck. Yeah, Alina, we, we have this segment because sometimes we are talking about very serious issues like today. And then we want to make sure to highlight some things that are good and that are bringing us women or society in general a, a bit forward. So these episodes, It Doesn't All Suck, comes from Beijing, China. So in February, a divorce court ordered a husband to pay his wife more than $7,700 in compensation for the housework she performed during five years of marriage. This is a landmark decision that activists are hoping will lead to greater protections for women in China. So some may say that $7,700 for five years is not too much. A housekeeper or a nanny would receive more, maybe. I don't know. However, in our humble opinion, you got to start somewhere. And this is huge. I think it's actually great that in the divorce, you get that. The court stated that the husband was obligated to compensate his wife because housework carries intangible 
property value and should be considered an asset. Mrs. One, which is this woman, we toast to you and your attorney is actually a very good case. What do you think about this? I love it. One thing I learned in an economics class, and I really didn't pay attention to anything else except for this little gem, is if a man marries his housekeeper, the world economy suffers as a result because what he used to pay her for, now he gets for free, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So the idea that we are not, the fact that we take on the majority of unpaid labor and it is not counted, quote unquote, in you know, the global economy. Look at COVID. Guys were like, wow, I didn't realize it was so difficult being at home. Like those dishes, they don't wash themselves. You know, these <laughs> were like amazing epiphanies on the part of working dudes who, re who say things like, honey, let me help you with the dishes. No, sweet cheeks. Those are your dishes too. You're not helping me. You're actually helping yourself yes. and that's part of your job. Like yeah. there is so much about the language around the unpaid labor and domestic oh. responsibility. Or tonight I'm babysitting. Uh, you know, yeah. you're not babysitting. You're taking care of your own kids. Exactly. It's a, it is really amazing. Sometimes I'm like, dudes, you really got to take, don't talk before you think. Just yeah. be a little careful of that. Just <laughs> reframe that thought that just popped into your head. Just reframe frame it just a little bit before yeah. it comes out of your mouth. <laughs> My mom taught me if you don't have anything nice to say, just shut up. And I really think if you're going to say something dumb like that, you can never take it back. Yeah. You know, and I yeah. would just dig my heels and be like, what? Wait a minute. And that, that's not to say that everything is 50-50 on this stark dividing line. It is about creating a balance that works for you at home. If I love to cook, then let me cook. You yeah. wash or you clean the bathroom or let's create some harmony around a sense of shared responsibility for the space that we occupy. Yep. And have agreements. I, my husband is not the tidiest person. And I said, we need to make some agreements because I'm not here to be your housekeeper. So we we're going to figure out how to make this work for the two of us, because I'm never going to change you, but I'm not going to clean up after you. So, <laughs> but the room to negotiate those things is what's so important. Otherwise we're going to continue to perpetuate this patriarchal status quo where yep. I'm happily washing and vacuuming and it's feminine mystique all over again. Like I love doing these house chores. Look at this beautiful new product I just bought, yeah. you know, and that's, that's not all that we are capable of. Our lives are multidimensional and so rich and could be so much richer if we just broke free of all those shackles and let go of that bullshit. And it requires changes such as parental leave, not just maternity leave, right? Yes. Don't get rid of maternity leave, but let's make parental leave so that there's also that husbands and fathers are given dedicated time to be able to do that as well, which exactly. will be another podcast, I am sure. <laughs> yes, for sure. So I like it because you know what? Then I will put somebody on there who is part of my team working on that very campaign Ooh. for Lebanon. No, oh, yep. right. yes, whoever you are, you just got volunteered. We'll talk to you soon. I <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right, ladies, that concludes this podcast on feminism. And as you can tell, there are so many subtopics to this conversation. We have no <laughs> doubt that we will be hosting other episodes, exploring feminism more deeply and looking at the intersectionality of issues and the different forms of feminism and what they're fighting for. But as you all know that have been listening to us, and for those of you that are new, we always put out an ask at the end of our podcast, something for you to do in the spirit of our conversation. And today's ask is to do a bit of observation and journaling. Pay attention to when you are treated differently because of your gender. 
what was if you're reflecting back or is the situation if it's happening currently and how does it make you feel would you do or ask for something different in the future our example here of would you ask your spouse to reframe a conversation or a situation or is it something in a work context or more societal in nature but just reflect back or observe the things that happen to you as you go through your day and journal that for yourself and if you're willing Feel free to share on our website or our social media where we will post a discussion for a community conversation. Yes. So now we would like to thank you, Lena, for joining us. Yeah. It was, it was a pleasure to talk to you, to learn from you, and to catch up with you. You are always so inspiring, and we appreciate all the hard work you do for women and girls worldwide. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for highlighting all this. I think the more people who talk about it and get excited and get angry, the better. Yeah, we hope to have you back soon for any other topic that you want to explore. And yeah, we will put all your social media contacts in our notes and on our social media posts for House of Happy so people can follow you as well and know how to help. Thank you. Yeah, right so on. It, I love it. In the meantime, please join the House of Happies online and on social media. We appreciate all the likes that you're giving us on our posts. However, we would love if you converse with us and engage with us. So please jump in and join in the discussion. But until next time, good morning from Seattle. And good evening from Amsterdam. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Lena. Bye.